Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by our resident training expert, Coach Trevor Connor. In today's episode, we'll un- attempt to unlock the mysteries of fatigue. We all know what it feels like. It's likely we've all experienced that exasperating feeling when our legs give out on a critical climb or our sprint fails to materialize at the critical moment. But do you know what causes that fatigue? Is it just lactic acid pooling in your legs, as your high school coach probably told you? No, that's not it. The answer is a lot more complex than you'd think. In fact, some of the most exciting theories have only recently been proposed. Today, we'll talk about those exciting revelations and the foundations of fatigue, including number one, the many different physiological causes of fatigue, including muscle damage, glycogen depletion, body temperature, and why no one of these reasons fully explains fatigue, despite what some researchers might tell you. Number two, a new exciting theory that suggests there's a so-called central regulator of fatigue, which integrates all of the different past theories and ultimately allows our mind to decide where our limits are. That is, could fatigue be a psychological thing? Number three, how much fatigue is actually a conscious choice that can be influenced by the length of the race, cues we give ourselves, and mental tricks? And finally, why we need to be careful about toying with our limits of fatigue. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Chung, an exercise physiologist and professor in the kinesiology department at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, whose research interests include the effects of environmental stress on human physiology and performance. We'll also hear from professional racer Sepp Kuss, neopro with Lotto NL Yumbo on the world tour, who will talk about his limits when racing. So, pay attention, wake up, stop dozing off, and let's make you fast. Hey, Trevor, been for any bike rides lately? Uh, I just did a whole training camp this weekend. Oh, wow. How many miles? Oh boy. So it was 24 hours in the mountains of Boulder, so probably 80 miles. Hmm. <laughs> Is you're feeling healthy? I'm feeling pretty tired, yeah. Good, good. Well, you know, for active people like yourself, for listeners of Fast Talk Podcast, runners, triathletes out there, there's a great product called Health IQ that we are uh, sponsored by today. And we want to tell you about their website, www.healthiq.com slash velonews where you can go as a listener of fast talk and get yourself a free quote for healthy people you go there upload strava records uh, map my ride account recordings of your ride and any other proof that you are indeed a healthy fit person and you'll get yourself a better quote pretty cool So, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Obviously, you you work at Brock University, and, and you have a huge list of, of research uh, publications that you've put out while you're there. But you actually are, are very heavily involved in the cycling world, and a lot of people might not 
know just how much you've done. So why don't you, before we launch into this podcast, just tell us a, a few of the ways you've been involved, including, I believe you just published a book, correct? Well, thanks for having me. And yes, you're absolutely correct that we just published a book called Cycling Science. And it's pretty self-explanatory what the book is all about. But it's co-edited by myself and Dr. Michael Zabala, who is a scientist at the University of Granada in Spain and also the lead sports scientist for the Movistar Pro team. So uh, that came out this late summer. And it's really about 40 different chapters, really an encyclopedia on many, many different topics in science of cycling, everything from physiology to bike fit, aerodynamics, pacing strategies, nutrition, uh, environmental stressors, and power training, data management. So really a whole host of different topics. So it was really a labor of love and uh, we're really happy to have it out. All right. So on to today's topic of fatigue. Dr. Chung, could you please help us understand this definition of what is fatigue? Well, Chris, there, the problem with trying to define it, there really is no true definition of fatigue. If you talk to 20 different scientists, you'll probably get about 40 different definitions of what fatigue is. It's really based on a lot of times their personal area of interest so my personal area of interest is extreme heat and cold. So a lot of times my definition of fatigue revolves around what happens because of heat and cold and things that those stressors directly cause. You talk to a muscle physiologist and a lot of times they will focus on the actual single muscle fiber and what's happening in there. You talk to a metabolism researcher and they will be talking about the different fuels, whether it's fats or carbohydrates and glycogen depletion and how that is affecting the muscles. So it's it's really challenging to come up with an overall definition. Probably a good basic, really fundamental working definition is just the inability to exert as much force as desired. And that sounds incredibly vague and wishy-washy, but it's really saying that at any one time, you are not able to work as hard as you want to work at that point. So first thing to do when talking about fatigue is really trying to get this broad general perspective overall before really digging into individual models. And I have to say, even though you say that, that sounds like a bit of a cop-out. As you know, there, there's a pretty definitive review of fatigue by, by Abbas and Larson from 2005. And I'm looking at their definition right here, and it's, it's pretty much what you just said. And it matches with what uh, a lot of scientists have kind of come to this realization that it's not necessarily just about their particular area. And this article that you mentioned by Chris Abbas and Paul Larson, excellent, excellent article in 2005 outlining kind of how various different models contribute. So some of the models they talk about is simple changes within the muscle cells themselves that causes um, a lack of power output or a reduction in force. There is the metabolic changes that I've talked about. There's changes in movement efficiency over time. There are kind of biomechanical changes in gait uh, if you're talking about running or in cycling where you just get sloppy and that's adding to the extra 
work that you have to do to maintain the power output. And then there's the thermal model, which uh, again, a lot of my work has been on looking at what happens when you are hot and how does that directly affect your ability to sustain power. And then the final model is really somewhat contentious through the early kind of turn of the century. And for about a decade afterwards, this whole idea of a psychological component. And, you know, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about that. But for many years, like you said in the introduction, Trevor, scientists have just said, well, it's physiology. It's just because whatever happens in your body and you can't sustain power output. But we've come to the realization now that there is a huge psychological component, that there may still be this ceiling of physiology that you can't get away from. But a lot of times on a day-to-day, second-by-second level, how much power we are willing to push on our pedals really comes down to more psychological constraints rather than necessarily purely physiological ones. Let's get to that in a minute, but I think the important thing um, when we're talking about these older models of fatigue, you just gave a huge list. And I've had athletes ask me, you know, what causes me to get tired? And my response has always been, well, well, it depends because it really isn't one cause. And like you said, it almost sounds like a cop out, but there are many, many different things that contribute to fatigue, anything from muscle damage and soreness to overheating to running out of the the basic fuels that you need to power the muscles. But the interesting thing they had in in Abbas's uh, review was he said that the the old belief among scientists, uh, I think this is what you were uh, heading towards, was that fatigue was some sort of catastrophic event. Basically, your body said, I can no longer physiologically sustain this effort. So I am done. Um, And it sounds like the old research was really looking for what is that catastrophic event? Yeah, absolutely. And you have to look at the way kind of science is traditionally done. We are trying to control as many aspects as possible and isolate one factor, whether it's the muscles, whether it's the amount of glycogen in our body, and really test the effects of that. And a lot of the test protocols that we use in the lab involve often what's called a time to exhaustion test where you are asked to ride at a set wattage, let's say 250 watts, and sustain that wattage for as long as you can. So you really, at the end, you fail because a lot of times of physiology, you are have become hypoglycemic. You have just become too hot or whatever. So a lot of times, I think the, the way we do science has contributed to this idea that there is a specific physiological point of failure. I'm not certainly not arguing that there is a point of failure. If your body gets too hot, you're going to experience heat stroke. Your cells are going to denature. Absolutely, you know, there is a physical point of failure. But again, in the last 10 years, there's been more and more uh, use of rather than these time to exhaustion tests, uh, having a much more open test like a time trial where you're just told to complete a set amount of work as fast as possible, whether it's distance whether it's the maximum power that you can sustain over 10 minutes or uh, a certain number of kilojoules. And I think that is a good change in 
protocol because A, it's ecologically valid. It's very similar to a time trial type effort in real life. And also it has a lot more degrees of freedom. It allows you to change everything from the cadence that you're riding to your pacing, whether you start hard and then you taper off or whether you kind of ride more conservatively. Your brain can, in essence, be making a lot more decisions as opposed to a time to exhaustion where it's simple, do I stop or do I keep going? Right. And that, so that really brings us to this new model, which I've seen a, a few names for it. There's, there's this looking at it as an integrated model. There's a central governor. But it seems like this is the direction they're going with with fatigue, which is this, it's not one thing, but all these various factors, the heat, the substrate use, uh, muscle damage, all these things, essentially at some level, they're they're all being integrated for your central system, your brain to say, let's look at all these factors and determine if if there's a we're at a point where we need to slow down where we're at a point of fatigue yeah absolutely and probably the main proponent or the first major proponent of this uh kind of psychological model in the last 20 years or so has been professor tim noakes from south africa he's very very famous exercise scientist he wrote the he wrote the classic book the lore of running that really in a way helps sustain and set off the uh the running boom and um he in around the early 2000s started proposing that a lot of what we're talking about today that it's not just physiology the real reason for fatigue is the brain and he called it the central governor model and i remember sitting in a lot of his early kind of presentations as he was debating others about it and one of his favorite slides to illustrate his point is he would put up a a, a slide of a ferrari or a, a f1 race car and, and ask the audience how fast can that car go and you know people start saying oh 300 kind of uh, k an hour or whatever and then his response is always as fast as the driver is willing to let it go yeah right? and if you think of in that case the f1 car being the body and the driver being the brain his argument then is that it really comes down to how hard is the body will or is the brain willing to work at any one time so it's a very kind of basic model. It's been modified, kind of, in a sense, improved and tweaked a lot. But at the very core of it, he started this model by really looking at at a paradigm where, uh, if you remember the Philippides, the original marathon runner, where he ran the 26.2 miles, and then he uh, said, you know, rejoice, we have won, and then he collapsed and died. And He's notes is essentially saying that, you know, that is what the body is trying to gauge. It is trying to run or complete this work as quickly and as efficiently as possible without catastrophic collapse, without reaching the point of Philippides. So the body is constantly integrating all these different ideas, whether it is physical cues in the body, um, how much glycogen I have, how hot I am, how thirsty I feel, to more experienced ones. Well, historically, how fast can I run a 
a 10K or how fast can I do a 40K time trial? How fast can I ride up this hill? So all of this is building this template in your brain of how hard at any one time am I willing to go? So that's really where where kind of the models have evolved to this real-time integration of a lot of signals in your body. So you, you brought up an interesting point when you talked about you know, how, how fast can I do this 40K versus how fast could I, for example, do a, a track kilo? I'm trying to remember which study it was, or review it was I read, but they talked about whether this central governor was in the heart or in the brains. And you know, there was some belief that it would be in the heart because you know, that's what you really need to protect. But it sounds like there's also a, a, a big perceptual part, which would say this is mental. And not only is this mental, it's not all subconscious. As in yeah, this, this governor saying, I've got an hour effort versus a five minute effort. So I'm going to perceive fatigue differently. Is that the case? Absolutely. And uh, I mean, we've all experienced this, right? You know, ahead of time, if you are going to be riding a 10 mile time trial, you know, roughly how fast, even if you don't have a power meter on, or you put tape over the power meter, nine times out of 10, you're going to, and you're going to complete it. If you did this nine, 10 times, probably nine times of it, you're going to be really close in your pacing profile. And that just comes down to you learning and kind of a setting up this template for how long or how hard can I sustain an effort uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to if it was again a 1k time trial on the track you know you can go a lot harder so experience has a huge role in kind of how hard you are willing to work and certainly the studies that have been done on perceptual ratings of perceived exertion the RPE scale you know it's not a static scale your perception of effort changes and it's really helping you set up this template. How quickly can you set up this template? There was a really interesting study from Alexis Mauger in the UK. And what they did was they had two groups of cyclists mm-hmm. complete a set time trial. And in one group, they knew exactly you are going to be riding 4K and you are going to get full feedback of power output, time, distance, whatever. And they did that four times over the course of a day. Another group, all they were told was they're going to ride the exact same distance four times over that day. They got no feedback. They had no idea how long it was. And the really interesting thing was the full feedback group, the very the first time out and the fourth time out, they were identical in terms of the pacing strategy, the overall time of completion, the average power output. But the really fascinating thing is the group with no feedback, the first time their time was really slow, but the third and fourth time, they were almost identical to each other and they were pretty much identical to the group with full feedback. So your body really learns very, very quickly what it can do and what it really is willing to do. Now, the flip side of that is it can become a real trap. When you know, as a coach, you have to push your athletes out of their comfort zone. It can be really, really hard to push an athlete out of that comfort zone because they're so used to, to doing an effort this way because it has become so ingrained into them. So that becomes almost the other challenge of if people can learn a pattern so quickly, how do we break them out of it so that they can actually ride faster? The classic example of this, uh, 
going back to running again is the four minute mile. You know, people thought it just could not be done. There was no way it could be done. And then as soon as Roger Bannister broke it, well, yeah, what do you know yeah. about a ton of people broke it almost within that same year. So there is almost that huge psychological hurdle you have to jump through to uh, break out of that template. And that's one of the really kind of interesting offshoots of this psychological model. So in this central governor model, it seems that there is this limiter, this psychological or mental limiter. And I assume that through evolution, there has there is a purpose for this. And I'm curious to hear you guys both discuss the science behind that. What is the purpose of this limiter? Um, just go back. We really cover these limiters and this idea that, A, they are, they're relative and the factors that affect them. Uh, and B, the whole purpose for, of them is to, to protect your, your body from damage. And, and that means that um, these limits aren't at the true point of your body's about to, to die. It's more yeah. saying we're stopping you. You, you. You've got more in you, but we are stopping you before it, it becomes damaging. Well, I would say that there are absolutely hard limiters. I don't want listeners to go away thinking, well, I can always push harder. I can always, always push harder. No, there are absolute ceilings that your body simply cannot go past. Again, if your body temperature goes to 42 degrees Celsius, your cells are going to start to denature. The proteins are going to break down. There is no no amount of psychology that is going to push you past that. So I don't want to get across the message that there are are no such thing as limiters. You can always go harder. Having yeah, said to, that, let me quickly yeah. to add to that. There was a very interesting study where they had athletes do six kilometer, twenty kilometer, and forty k TTs. Obviously, your intensity is going to be different. And what they discovered was in the six k TT, where they were really uh, going above, you know, what people think of as FTP or, or lactate threshold. The, the point of fatigue was completely peripheral. It was just a breakdown. It was acid buildup, lactate buildup, neuromuscular breakdown. So there, there was no central governor there. They, they were just fatigued. Where at those other lengths, um, where they were generally staying at or below lactate threshold, it was much more central. You didn't see that, that peripheral breakdown. But that was their conclusion that when you're going really intense, um, it's, it truly is your body is physiologically breaking down. Yes, absolutely. So it really comes to the question of how often and how close to that physical limit are we willing to go on a regular training ride, on a club ride, on a race, or if we're attempting the hour record. Like what I, I think one of the, the real concepts is about how to essentially turn off or or uh, disable that emergency handbrake that we have on our voluntary effort, how hard we're willing to work. And that can be done by a variety of ways. And uh, I'm sure we're going to come up to a point about some of the ethics of of right. doing that work. But I, I feel that there are definitely limiters. And again, the Abbas and Larson review, each of those models of fatigue they present essentially present a different model of where the body ultimately will break down. And the psychological component really is about how close are we willing to push to those limits. 
And is there a line that the body has and is there a purpose to that line? I think it's self-preservation is the ultimate thing. It's, um, you know, you want to be pushing as hard as you can before you're, you know, you pull a muscle, you pull a tendon, you, you, uh, you know, place too much stress on your knee and start developing tendonitis. So pain is an absolute, I think, evolutionarily designed to warn us of those physical limits and uh, whether it's pain in the sense of a torn muscle or that severe sense of discomfort from being hot or severe thirst those are all kind of uh, your body's way of expressing those limiters to your brain and saying you better pay attention because we are coming up to a critical point and if you don't slow down uh, we are gonna be in trouble so that, that goes back again to the heart of this idea of the psychological model is ultimately your brain is integrating all of these signals and saying, at this point in time, how hard am I willing to work? And it is a kind of a feedback and a feed forward system where every second by second, you are constantly deciding on, on that in real time. It sounds like you're saying the point of fatigue is not the the where you have completely depleted your reserves and you have nothing left that the heart of all this is, is your your mind integrating all these signals and saying i want to stop you before you do any sort of bad damage to your body unless of course your your life is on the line or, or there there's a purpose to cross that but those limiters I would say, yes, are those absolute kind of point of failures. And you don't ever want to be that close to it. It's if you think about it as an engineer, you're always designing something with a safety factor, right? You are never just designing, designing a plane for, you know, in a sense, everyday use. You are always adding a factor of two in terms of the G forces that it can handle, for example. So I think it's the same kind of idea in that has been integrated into the body over, over the course of evolution is that you've developed pain to let you know, okay, you're really, really close to the edge of your limiter. And then you have that whole range of discomfort before then. So to go with your analogy, it's kind of like the, the, the low gas signal in a car. It doesn't go on when you are out of gas. It goes on when you still have enough time to get to a gas station and do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. We had a chance to talk with American World Tour rider Sepp Kuss, who now rides with Lotto NL Yumbo. We talked to Sepp about this concept of fatigue and a central limiter and how it plays into racing. What was interesting was how much context, such as the length of the race and the type of race, played into the limits and how much the limit was actually a conscious choice. Is there a limit that you are able to cross, but if you cross it, you are going to pay for it? Like there is going to be damage that you are going to feel for, for a long time after that? Or do you feel you can always handle it, that you stop yourself before it truly becomes damaging? For me, I think it's, I usually can stop myself. I, uh, I, kind of see myself as a more not not conservative um but but I'm pretty familiar with with my limits and yeah it's it's hard to think of the times I've truly gone to that very very dark place cuz you know even in in some race situations you're never you're never fully fully emptying emptying the tank yeah I I have a rough idea of what my limit is but I I don't know if I 
know what it will do to me, you know, hours or days later. So that's is, what you're referring to. Yeah, is it subconscious or is it conscious? Are you aware of that limit and you just go, no, I'm not going to go to that dark place? Or does it just your body's going to stop you before you go there? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I think I think it's a bit of both. I think, you know, as, as someone that's that's always training, that's always always racing, you kind of become more familiar with your limits. And so maybe that, that goes back to your, your brain feedback saying, okay, no, it's this point in the race or it's this point in the time trial. This is not the, the sensation physically or mentally that I should be having right now. So I think, I think for me, I, yeah, I feel in tune with those sensations and, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty conscious, I'd say. And that's a really interesting point. You said at this point in the time trial. So yeah. let's say, let's use something that you're, it sounds like you're a little more comfortable with. You're going up a climb. Um, if you're five minutes away from the finish versus 20 minutes away from the finish, is the limit different? Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, that's that's a good example. I mean, that that 1K to go, that just that visual of that, I think, sets me and a lot of people off. You know, you say, oh, 1K to go, that's that's nothing I'll, I'll attack now. And then, you know, maybe, maybe you go too early because mentally you say, Oh, one K to go, I can empty the tank, but it could be a bit longer. So, um, you know, that opposed to starting the climb and having maybe more, more mental bullets or, um, you know, on the opposite end too, you could start a climb and say, Oh, I have nothing left mentally. I don't, I don't want to be here right now. I'm, I'm suffering. I'm already at my limit. So, is that different when you are in a, let's say you're in a stage race and let's say guys are going super hard and you know, you're going to empty the tank, but there's still a race tomorrow. Do you just say I'm emptying the tank and, and we'll see what happens tomorrow. Or do you say there's a race tomorrow? I'm going to let them gap me because I still have to be able to race. Yeah. I think it, I think it depends on the, the point in the, in the climb or the, the race. Um, you know, I think, a lot of the time with 1k to go if you totally go full gas it's you know the it might be marginal whether you're totally fatigued the next day but yeah i think you see that a lot in grand tours it's it's totally a cumulative effect and you know for me if it was a mountain mountaintop finish and a you know a time trial the next day part of me would say oh i need to i need to take time on on this climb but then also part of me would say, no, I can't totally blow myself up because I have to perform the next day. So, yeah, I think I think at the end of the day, though, you just want to win. So <laughs> that's that's the, you know, the, the overpowering force. So I and I you, you see that all the time. It's, you know, there's still very much that that uh, competitive feeling. And some I, I don't think anybody would say, no, they they would sacrifice the win for for that maybe one or two percent advantage the next day, you know, unless they're truly, truly focused on the, the big picture of a grand tour, which you also see. But. Sep touched a few times in this whole idea that there is a mental side to fatigue. Let's explore that a little further. Some of the really neat newer studies coming out as has again tried to look at what is different in the cognitive functioning, the how the brain works in elite athletes. And one of 
the studies that I personally found really fascinating was they compared using MRI imaging group of relatively sedentary individuals, recreational athletes, and compared them to elite level adventure racers. These are the guys that do, uh, do the five day kayaking, running, uh, mountain biking, those crazy, crazy elite races. And, uh, these were the best of the best. They got them in, they looked at their MRI while they were doing these different cognitive testing. And in the middle, without kind of any prior warning in terms of the timing, they put in a really strong, painful stimulus. And the painful stimulus was they restricted their breathing. They essentially cut off their air supply, to put it kind of in a very basic terms. And then they looked at their responses. As you can imagine, most of us, if we were faced with that, our mental functioning would go completely down. Our brain signals would just be, you know, going haywire. But surprisingly, the elite adventure racers, they actually didn't have much, if any, decrement in their cognitive performance in the middle of that really, really uh, strong, kind of noxious, almost stimulus. And their uh, brain patterns weren't that much affected above their normal baseline. So it really gets back to this idea of something about being really fit or being really used to that sense of discomfort, you know, it's, you can just handle it better. And I find that study just incredibly fascinating. Yeah. I read a, a similar one to that where they took, um, elite cyclists and, and amateur cyclists and had them do a time trial. I think it was a, a 20 minute time trial. And then a week or two later, they, they repeated the time trial, but before they, they repeated it, they did 30 minutes of this, this uh, cognitive functioning test that really tested your ability to focus. And it can be a, a mentally fatiguing test. And they found that not only did the elite cyclists perform better in the cognitive test, but then when they performed the time trial afterwards, the amateur cyclists, their performance declined, where with the elite cyclists, it didn't. So they didn't have that mental fatigue. They had that much essentially a trained ability uh, to really handle cognitive focus. Yes, and uh, that really leads into uh, how kind of we can train ourselves to, in a sense, put up with that discomfort better to get it closer to those critical limiters. One of the studies that, that came out of our lab at the start of 2017 I felt was really innovative. What we did was we took uh, trained kind of club level cyclists and what we wanted to do was we wanted to look at the effects of sports psychology intervention called motivational skills training and we wanted to look at whether that can improve their tolerance to uh, exercise in the heat and improve their exercise capacity. So what we did was we had a pretest and then we had two weeks of either no psychological training or two weeks of this motivational skills training in another group. What was the motivational training that you were doing? Because this is almost one of those things that people make fun of and say, well, this is kind of silly. Yep. But it The motivational training was specifically focused on improving how I feel in the heat or tackling that discomfort in the heat. So motivational skills training is really taking 
something that is uncomfortable and then reframing that and kind of refocusing from it and reframing it. So for example, you may be riding and you feel sweat dripping down your face. It's like, oh, this is burning. This just sucks. I hate the heat. And what we taught the the uh, cyclist to do is really reframe that into kind of almost being a positive and that, you know, this is a sign of there being working hard and being able to push in the heat rather than framing it as this is a really crappy feeling. And then we got them to keep working on that over the course of two weeks, develop kind of these reframing strategies, these mantras, these keywords to focus on when these uncomfortable feelings arose. And so they were all individual. It wasn't a case of, okay, everybody just, you know, think sunshine and lollipops when things are hot. We got them to work on it individually and develop meaningful keywords of their own. So the test itself, had them ride at a sustained pace for about half an hour and that's to get their body temperature up get them starting to be uncomfortable then we had to do a cognitive battery of testing and uh, testing a whole bunch of different uh, mental function and then we had them ride to exhaustion at a really really hard effort when their core temperature was already high the really fascinating thing was the control group no difference in their cognitive performance after the two weeks, as we would expect. No difference in their physical performance. But in the, in the motivational skills group, they had better cognitive performance even bef- in the heat, even before they started exercise. And also, they were able to go about 25% longer after the two weeks of motivational skills training. There was no difference in physical kind of capacity in their VO2 max or anything like that. And they hit a higher core temperature, correct? Yeah, and they hit a much higher core temperature afterwards. So again, it gets back to that idea of that psychological manipulation was able to essentially tweak how hard they were willing to work for how long. The other really fascinating thing was that if you look at their profile of how the ratings of perceived exertion developed over the course of time, after the two weeks of motivational skills training, they still got up to a really uncomfortable feeling of 19 uh, at about the same time as before. But the big difference was they were willing to tolerate that really severe discomfort for a much longer period of time than they did before. So that also, I think, points to the fact that our, our psychological intervention was successful. They were able to tolerate much more discomfort. And that included both the physical discomfort and also the thermal di- discomfort. So there was no improvement in physiological fitness. This was simply when you're talking about that limiter, they were able to push that that limiter up. Yeah, I believe that was the reason for it. It definitely wasn't because they had a higher VO2 uh, max after those two weeks. There was no difference before and after when we tested that. Yeah, so Chris, I think I almost just had a heart attack. We accidentally put up a rough version of one of our podcasts and quickly got it down and put up a new one, but I certainly felt my heart coming up through my throat when that happened. So may it had me thinking. Thinking about what? 
thinking about whether I needed some life insurance. <laughs> you always need life insurance. Let's, in all seriousness, talk a little bit about Health IQ, which is a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like cyclists, runners, and hopefully ourselves. Uh, they are able to give us favorable rates for life insurance, and they have a special URL just for Fast Talk, which is www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk, where listeners of the show can go for their free quote. While you're there, you can submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or map my run account or other proof that you are indeed a regular cyclist and get a better quote. It's fascinating when you're talking about this, this idea of fatigue, just how much research there is out there showing that your perception, your understanding of, of your environment uh, contributes. You know, I, I read a study right before this that I thought was fascinating where they took subjects, had them do a 200-meter or 2,000-meter run. And in one situation, they, they just had them do the run. In another situation, they had them believe that they were competing. And when they thought they were competing, they were faster. And as you pointed out with the RPE scale, their perception of, diff, of what was hard was different. They, you know, they had a, a different RPE. So yeah. It really is amazing. It seems like this fatigue is somewhat relative to a very conscious level of understanding of, of what's your, your situation. And so in, in a lot of the research, they talked about the end point. How, how close am I to the finish? Am I competing? Yep. And, and how, how hard is this? Yeah, and that goes back to one of Noakes' classic arguments for the central governor motto is that there is almost always, no matter how fatigued someone is, almost at the end, they can still be sprinting. There's always that end spurt. So it shows that for the bulk of the time they were running or riding beforehand, they weren't going to their physical max because if they were, they shouldn't be able to uh, sprint at the end. They should just be continuing on to the finish at the same pace. So yeah, that's certainly one of the classic arguments from Noakes about this whole kind of idea of a psychological component. I think I read that study you were talking about. It was absolutely fascinating where they um, had, uh, I'm pretty sure they had, it was cyclists um, on ergometers. And they were instructed to ride to fatigue, literally ride to the point where they could not go another second. And, and the, the researchers would say, okay, so you can't pedal another second. And they go, no, I can't pedal another second. And then they go, do a 15-second sprint. <laughs> Every one of them could do a 15-second sprint, and they could actually put out good power. That sounds like good old Rush, uh, Soviet era, East German uh, training there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like fun. But the, the point they made in that, that study was – when it was, again, that perceptual side, uh, how much it affects fatigue, because when it was an open-ended activity, it was just go tell fatigue. So there's no time limit. There's no length. You might be going 15 minutes. You might be going two hours. You don't know. That gives you a much lower perception of of, the, uh, of what you can handle or fatigue. When they were told sprint for 15 seconds, that's an endpoint that's very close. And, and that seems doable. So all of a sudden... They're, they're, they're not too fatigued to keep going. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think uh, that knowledge of endpoint is really important. As I mentioned that study by Mogger, once you know the endpoint, you know what you can do. And most of us in that sense has done a 15 second sprint of some kind. One, one particular um, 
thing that I would point out, and I know Trevor has some thoughts on this as well, is uh, having done the hour record myself and having read about the different efforts that went on from big names, uh, masters in a sense of their sports with Wiggins and, and Jens and, and the others that breaking down a an effort like that into segments really helps one digest what they're getting themselves into, but also in a sense, fool themselves into thinking that it's not as daunting a task as it actually is. And uh, I believe Jens broke his effort into three 20 minute segments. Wiggins broke his into even more segments. I did the same as well. And you think of these chunks and you, you kind of have to acknowledge that it's, it's a bit silly, I guess, because you know, you know that you're going to be doing 60 minutes. But at the same yeah. time, you do you do a six minute segment, and you, you're able to rise a, a little bit higher during that six minute segment. You hit that quote finish line. Ah, I've got another six minute segment, and you go a little bit deeper in that one. Not not that each each segment you go harder and harder, but you're able to lift um, within each of those a bit more than if you just accepted it as one giant sixty minute daunting effort. It's really interesting uh, you say that, Chris, because I think it. <laughs> I I thought I was just crazy, but it's actually very similar to, in a way, how I seem to be able to handle riding in races where I'm way over my head. And we have these club races in St. Catharines where it's just screamingly fast, kind of four corner, three k kind of total uh, laps, and and. I'm just suffering with them. The guys are just flying. And it seems what works for me is I kind of almost give myself permission to quit, but only at the end of that next lap. Right. As says, if I can hang on to this next lap to cross the line, then I can quit. Then magically, when I cross the line, I seem to have a netcha sketch and I erase that memory as it's okay, if I can only make it into group to the end of the next lap, then I can quit. And it's like, it's almost seems to be exactly what you're saying, Chris, that you just break it down into segments and you push yourself as hard as you can. And then you kind of get on to the next segment before your kind of brain realizes what you're doing. Exactly. Well, it goes back to what we were saying before that your, your perception or your, where you put that limit for fatigue is determined by by the endpoint you know how, how much is left and if you can essentially move that endpoint closer to you you're, you're going to raise that limit on, on what you perceive as fatigue i had uh altoona i think it was 2006 it was a uh, today it was close to 100 degrees we were 110 mile stage and our feeder missed me at both feed zones so we crested a climb about probably 20 miles from the finish, I was dramatically dehydrated and uh, had made the lead group, but was just dying. And I spent that entire 20 miles just, I'd look up the road, see a telephone pole and go, make it that telephone pole and I can pull the plug. As soon as I got to that one, I'd look to the next one and go, okay, make it to that one. And then I can pull the plug and got to the finish of the race doing that, just breaking it literally down into 30 second segments. Hmm. It's a, it's a, it helps performance. I can't say that it in the end it makes it any more comfortable, but you might get a little bit more out of yourself. <laughs> it's a little bit like torture. The one I will add is, as we said before, your your limit depends on length. Um, so it's really important as a cyclist to learn those various limits. Meaning, I'll often have riders come up to me and say, "I, I want to be," or say, "I want to be a better climber." My first question is, "What length climb?" 
because your limit for a two-minute climb is very different from your limit to a 30-minute climb. So it's good as a rider to go and start learning, you know, what is my pace? What is my limit if I'm doing a 30-minute effort? What is it for a five-minute effort? What is it for a 15-minute effort? So when you're faced with those situations, you know how hard you can go. Getting back to your idea about uh, the perception and almost fatigue as, and discomfort as, a, as an emotion rather than just a kind of physical cue. There's been a lot of uh, really intriguing evidence in the last while about the effect of training and the effect of fitness. And, you know, there's almost a, a, a train of thought or a school of thought that says, when you are training an athlete, you're not just training them physically, but you're training them to be used to discomfort. One of the really nice studies that came out in my field of uh, of temperature regulation was came out of my PhD lab um, in 2002 by Peter DeQuisis. They had a group of relatively unfit individuals and a group of highly aerobically fit individuals. They were testing the chemical warfare clothing the Canadian military wore and having them wear it in the heat. And they had them walk until they quit. And... The really interesting thing was in terms of their physical strain, how hard it was for the fit and the unfit group was about the same. Obviously, the fit group went for longer, but the really interesting thing was the perceptual strain for the non-fit group matched their physical strain. But the fit group, they were working just as hard, but they didn't feel as put out uh, nearly as hard in terms of their perceptual strain. So it really gives some evidence to this idea that one of the benefits of fitness isn't just a physiological improvement, but your ability to tolerate that discomfort. Some of the newer studies that have been coming out has been looking at the effect of brain chemistry and a lot of your different neurotransmitters in your brain. One of the chief ones that's been looked at is dopamine, which we often call kind of the happy drug. And this was a study that was done by Bart Rollins, who at the time was a PhD student in, at the Vrie University Brussels in Belgium. And it was actually funded by WADA. Because what WADA was interested in was there was a, potentially a lot of individuals or athletes who are taking uh, antidepressants like Ritalin. And what effect does that have on their performance if we know Ritalin essentially is what's called a dopamine reuptake inhibitor? So that means it, it slows down the decay and destruction of dopamine that is naturally in your brain. So if you take Ritalin, you tend to have more dopamine in your body. What Bart did was a really neat study where he had them do, had fit cyclists do time trials, one with placebo, one with very low sub-therapeutic dose of Ritalin. And he had them do the time trial in normal temperature, so about 18 degrees Celsius, and he also had them do the time trial in 30 degrees Celsius. The interesting result of this study was that there was no difference in the placebo or the Ritalin group in the low temperature in the 18 degrees Celsius, but in the 30 degrees Celsius condition, they were able to ride at a much higher average power and also, as a result, they were willing to put up with a lot higher final core temperature at, at the end. So 
something about the combination of exercise and the heat and also the Ritalin and the elevation of dopamine from taking Ritalin allowed them to perceive the effort to be less and therefore be willing to ride at a higher power output and as a result generate more heat and tolerate a higher body temperature. And that kind of fits in with what we talked about before with that study on fit and non-fit individuals and their perceptual versus physiological strain. It could be that fit individuals, whether it's because they're more inherently motivated, they're used to the discomfort, they're able to you know, have some neurotransmitter changes that enable their body and their brain to push harder. And that's actually some of the work that I want to be pursuing in the coming years to look at the effect of these uh, perceptual changes on your exercise performance and your muscle function. I could, I could see people out there getting really excited by this notion that you can trick yourself or fool yourself or, or train yourself to raise these limits. But it seems like there's an ethical question here of whether you could go too far. Do you put people in danger if you do this? I'm, I'm assuming this has been a consideration in your research as well. There, there absolutely is a consideration in this. And remember the study on Ritalin that I talked about, it was originally funded by WADA. And the reason for it was they were afraid that people were going to start abusing and being prescribed unnecessarily these dopamine reuptake inhibitors so that they can fool themselves by taking this drug into being w willing to work harder and willing to tolerate a higher body temperature. So that was the exact reason why WADA funded this specific study. And it raises this whole ethical question that you pointed out, Chris, is uh, how far can we and should we be going in terms of tweaking these limits? It's one thing with a little bit of sports psychology. It's quite another thing, maybe in terms of taking taking a unnecessary uh, substance like Ritalin if you if you are not needing it for a real true medical uh, reason. Another one is uh, those several studies of again with heat tolerance where they're having people do mouth rinses with uh, mouthwatch, which gives you a sense of a sensation of cooling in your mouth. And, and that also extended time to exhaustion. They, it basically tricked their bodies into thinking they were being cooled when they weren't. Mm -hmm. And the same thing also with uh, some other pre-cooling strategies like with uh, neck collars or neck bandanas. There's very little actual thermal cooling going on with them. Most of it is perception. You are feeling cooler mainly because your neck is cooler and your neck has a lot of kind of sensors that feed into how cool or hot that you feel. So if you cool your neck, there's actually no real actual direct cooling going on, but it's making you feel cooler. And again, you're then able and willing to push yourself harder. So uh, you really have to question when and if you actually want to be doing anything to really kind of in a way affect your psychology, especially in a, in a really, really intense situation where you can be already running pretty close to that limiter or whatever limiter you have to begin with? Something you need to be careful of. I mean, I, I've 
unfortunately, over the years, learned uh, to to really push my limits. You know, I, I'd have my body screaming at me saying, stop. And I'm pretty good at being that grouchy guy saying back to my body, uh, no, keep going. And you can get in trouble for doing that. So, for example, I had one race where I had been sick. I'd been throwing up all night the night before, and I decided to start the first day of Gila. Got to the top of the climb, and I just remember crossing the finish line. Apparently, I was just wandering kind of aimlessly. Somebody grabbed me. My blood pressure was 70 over nothing. Uh, they put me in a, in the medical tent, and I got two IV bags. Blood pressure still wasn't back up, and they, they were thinking about taking me to the hospital for, for some more bags. And it was a month before I was anywhere close back to normal after that. So, I mean, when you push these limits in unhealthy ways, there's a price to pay. Yes, absolutely. So the last thing I want listeners to go away with is thinking, wow, I just learned all these different ways I can kind of fool myself and I'm going to really put all of them together as, you know, my next marginal gains for my next event. It's, um, I would look at them more as or giving you insight into areas that you can improve your performance rather than saying, Ooh, I've, I found my new silver bullet, magic bullet. So I really want to put that caution out for listeners to, uh, to really be careful and don't just try things willy nilly and really consider whether you actually want to be fooling your body in a sense. Are there any, um, you know, hallmark warning signs that you you are tricking yourself into a dangerous place certainly with temperature uh, the really dangerous sign is if you are not sweating anymore and that is a one of the classic hallmark symptoms of heat exhaustion and heat stroke when your body is so hot that it it can't even sweat anymore and your skin becomes really really uh pale and cold mm. that so that is certainly from that perspective one of the classic symptoms from metabolism if you become really hypoglycemic you know you're gonna feel it you know that's that bonking is another classic symptom that there's really no getting out of jail if you uh if you hit that level too so those will be two of the classics obviously any sign of actual kind of acute pain from pulling your muscle or anything like that, that's going to be another sign. So, you know, the signs are definitely there. They're very easy to tell, mm -hmm. but you still have to pay attention to them. Well, that was a very fascinating discussion today. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Uh, Stephen Chung. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and we hope to have you back on Fast Talk again. I really enjoyed it, Chris and Trevor. Thanks again for having me on. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk, and a fascinating one at that. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters, webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on, Fast, on Facebook, at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Dr. Stephen Chung, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thanks.